Wars have started because of it. Nations have annexed from other nations for it. It has destroyed families and caused divorces. Scandals, abuses, and crime is covered up by it. Some can't live without it, while others have never lived with it. It makes the world go around, but in a blink of an eye, it can make your world go upside down. It is one of the few things that all people can relate to regardless of how much, how little, or how none they possess. It promises happiness, but often brings distress. Some can't hold on to it, while others can't get enough of it. But in the end, when you leave this place, it will be no more. Money is its name. I don't think you need me to tell you about your love-hate relationship with money. Nor am I going to preach about all the ways in which money is bad or evil or, or pointless in this present age. No. In fact, I argue that the Bible is actually charitable towards money, especially when it is understood in its proper context or, or place. Oh, but, but that's the dilemma, isn't it? What is the proper place or context for money within the Christian life? In my short experience on earth, there are typically two Christian responses to money. On the one hand, you are told that God has called you to give everything away and live a life of material meekness or sackcloth. On the other, you are told that you are to give your very, very best to God through tithing so that he can bless you abundantly with more wealth and more health. See, one produces guilt while the other breeds angst and false expectations that leave you resenting God. The reality is, money is not going anywhere anytime soon. This is the world in which we live in. And whether you are aware of it or not, God does really care about your money. However, I believe the problem you and I have with money is not just what we are to do with it, but also I think we have an issue with how we ought to think about money. Humanity and Christians especially struggle with money because we often attach divine qualities that are impossible for it to be sustained or, or for it to be sustainable in our life. To say it differently, Money has risen to a position in your life that ought to be reserved for God. And when money becomes your God, fear and unbelief will drive you, will drive and influence how you do, how, what you do with your money. Therefore, I want to argue for a more biblical case of money and its intersection with the Christian life. Paul's last words in chapter 6 are crafted to teach you and I that when God is in charge of your money, it loses its power over you and becomes a powerful tool for God's kingdom. I knew that wouldn't catch any of you. So let me try it this way. When God rules your money, money doesn't rule you. 
The Apostle Paul concludes his first letter to Timothy with the word about earthly riches. Out of all the things he could have said, I find it very interesting that he chooses to use his final words to talk about money. Paul opens this letter to Timothy in chapter 1 with a warning about the false teachings and false doctrines that were infiltrating this young church. Then he moves to the leadership of the church and how they are supposed to be living examples of godliness for their people. And for the last couple of weeks, we have seen Paul close his letter with words of wisdom, parting words to a young church and a young pastor. Wisdom that will help the Christian live a life of congruence and flourishing. And just before Paul leaves center stage, he warns us of the uncertainty of earthly possessions. Verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides for us, with us, everything to enjoy. Now, I know as soon as I said, as soon as I read that first clause, you checked out. You said in your head, Jared, I ain't rich. Paul can't be talking about me. I don't possess a lot of money. I don't have a, a portfolio of 401ks and investments in the next. That's not my life. Well, according to American standards, you may be right. But let me remind you that persons who live in the United States of America are the rich. You are the wealthy 1% of the world in comparison to the rest of the world. You do possess a fast inventory of clothes. You do get to decide what you want to eat for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You have a roof over your head, a car to drive, gas to put it in. You have dozens of subscriptions, and half of them you don't even know what they're for. Yes, some of you are in school, and you do feel poor. But the fact that you are in school signifies the privilege that you do possess. Yes, many of us have grown up with humble means, and we're still living according to those means. But keep in mind that you are comparing yourself to the others that occupy that 1% of the world. That is not to say that there aren't those among us with vastly less than others in this country. Our neighborhood is a very prime example of that fact. In fact, I don't put these things, I don't point out these things to shame you or to conjure up guilty feelings because you take up residence in the wealthiest country on earth. No, no. I, I'm simply stating the realities about our context, the reality of the world in which you and I live in, a context in which God is very much aware of too. And because he's aware of it, because he's placed us here, he wants to use it for his purposes. To possess riches and wealthy is not inherently bad or evil. That's not what Paul is getting at here in verse 17. He isn't rebuking those who have money. Instead, he is making folks aware of its effects on you when it plays the role of God in your life. 
Money has a way of making us believe things that, about the human experience that aren't true. The gospel that money preaches to the modern American is one of true happiness, ultimate security, and power over our neighbors. And what Paul is trying to get at here is that when folk get a little money, they forget how to act. Oh yeah, that's the mind behind Paul's charge to the church at Ephesus to not become haughty or prideful because of your money, because of the things that you have accumulated in this world. Don't drink the Kool-Aid of money where it promises, it promises you that if you had more, then life would be better, that life would be perfect. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. You don't have to be rich to fall prey to money's allure. You could be broke as a joke and still carry the pride of money around. For you, it's the resentment or envy of others with more. It is the keeping up with the Joneses mentality that drives your hunger for more at the cost of you or your family or your own well-being. It is looking around at the station in which God has given you and being ungrateful for what you, you do have and turning your nose up to him because it's not good enough according to your standards. This is what those researchers at Kansas State University found out back in 2011. They did a deep dive into the stories that money was writing in the people, in the lives of people. They wanted to know what was money telling men and women across our country. And after 400 plus people were interviewed, they came away with four common themes or patterns that money was writing uh, uh, folks' lives. All of which, by the way, were negative. The first was avoidance. Money was to be avoided because it caused fear and anxiety or guilt if you had too much of it. Money was to be worshipped because that's what would bring you ultimate happiness and satisfaction to one's life. The third thing they found out was that money brings status or power over people. That if you just get enough dollars in your bank account, that's the power that you desperately want. That's what'll give you what you need. But then lastly, it showed that money breeds control or the desire to control one's situation. I'm sure every person in this room can at least resonate with two of those, if not all of those categories. Fear, salvation, power, and control. That's what money tells you you can have or you can get. What belongs to God now belongs to your money. The world has convinced you that money is actually the God you need after all. Salvation, money you do it. Power, money has it. Control, just go make some more. You want to live a long life? Get rich. You want to feel safe? Get rich. You want to control people and influence the world with your agenda? Get rich some more. Paul knows that God's people are vulnerable to, pray, to falling prey to earthly riches because it is an easy, intangible, and cheap substitution to God. Why depend on God when you can just depend on money? 
Well, I've got to answer. Because when your soul is in a bind, there is no blank check that's enough to get you out of that jam. When your spiritual bank account reads bankrupt, you need something else. You need something otherworldly to refill it in perpetuity. Temporal riches do not equate to internal ones. What God did on the cross in the person and work of Jesus Christ was pay a debt that you could not pay. Your green paper could not pay this debt. Your Bitcoin or cryptocurrency could not rectify that account. The cost of your sin was so heavy, it could not be given a numerical value. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus. I guess I am preaching to myself because, friends, when God stepped down from heaven, he left his riches with him. When he put on skin, he had to leave the treasures of heaven behind. When Jesus was nailed to that cross, your debt was nailed up there with him. When they pierced his side, the blood that ran down was the blood that turned you from rags to riches. Then he went to the grave and he came back up and he brought something with him that money can't buy. He brought eternal life. He purchased your broke behind and ransomed his life for yours when you could not. I don't know how else to say it, but money don't come close to grace. Everything in the world will cost you something, but the hope in Jesus is free because you didn't have to pay for it. There was a man, there was a man that paid for that debt. This is, this is the only hope you can, ha you can be certain to have in this world. And a life dependent on the riches of heaven will always outlast a life dependent on the riches found in this world. Yes, you may think the money will be the cure to your problems. You may be tempted to believe that if you have more, then life will just be all right or a little bit better. But your money doesn't help you when your family is dealing with death. It doesn't heal your soul when pain and grief have jumped on your back. Only the grace of God can do that, and only Jesus can pay your way from darkness to light. It was money that kept that rich young ruler from inheriting eternal life. Yeah, you remember the scene in Mark chapter 10. There he is, chasing after Jesus. He's got so much on his mind. There's a conundrum in his brain. He catches up and he kneels before Jesus and presents his query. A good teacher, what must I do to get into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus being Jesus gives this long soliloquy on keeping the law. Oh, but the, the young man has, has done everything according to what Jesus has said. But Jesus said, I have done what is right. Or, or the young man says, but Jesus, I have done what is right since I've been young. I've done all those things you've told me to do. And Jesus, being who he is, looks upon this young man with compassion and sadness, knowing that this young man's heart was already taken taken by his love for money. Money had replaced God in this man's life. It wasn't about what the young man could do for Jesus or, what, or, or, or just simply selling his possessions. His heart was tied to those possessions. Jesus told him he lacked one thing. He couldn't leave his love for money. It had, it had conquered his affections. He believed in a narrative that money was really better than God. 
This is why Jesus says it would be difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because they're rich, no, but because they have loved the creation more than their creator. Friends, when money rules your life, it loses its power for good and becomes a snare for Satan to have power over you. Paul pivots to his final movement to reorient his readers on the proper role and place of money in the life of the believers. Verses 18 and 19, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul is giving the church a, a different purpose for money. This is a kind of vision that Paul is trying to help the church see. When you have been touched by God, all of you now becomes new. Your soul, your body, your spiritual self, your physical self are now instruments for God to display his goodness and beauty in the world. Your heart is his. Your soul is his. Your mind is his. Your wallet is his too. That's the picture of God's lordship over your life. You have what you have because God has given it to you, but not just given it to you for you to enjoy alone, but for others to experience this goodness and beauty. And when your resources are seen as tools for blessing, instead of selfish commodities, you will begin to experience God's goodness and faithfulness in deeper ways. The idea of giving, yes, it is about the folks that need it, but there's something that happens to you. Paul's call to action to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share our tangible expressions of one's faith. In other words, when God's people practice generosity, your actions are proclaiming to those around you and to yourself that God really is who he says he is. He is a provider. That's right. The act of giving and doing good works is a declaration of faith. They are fruit of faith. You want to give much because, you have give, because he has given you much. Jesus wasn't playing when he asked the question in his Sermon on the Mount that if the grass had clothes to wear, how would I not clothe you? If the birds of the sky are fed, how could I not feed my own people? Oh, you of little faith, we struggle to be generous because we don't believe that God will be generous towards us. And I believe that is precisely, it is precisely those moments of unbelief where God is calling us, you and I, to walk in faith and watch him show up and do the rest. It's in your moments that you don't think he can provide for you, that you trust him and see what he does. Oh, but Jared, I've worked, I've worked hard for what I have. You don't know my life. You don't know where I've, where I've come from. You don't know my situation. I've never had this much money. Or, or, or I barely got anything to spare, let alone give it to someone else. Right now just isn't a good time for me to be generous. 
where one lacks in monetary resources, he or she has this thing called time. You may not have a lot of money to give or funds to share, but you got you. That's right. Showing up in the lives of folks ready to get your hands dirty is just as powerful, if not more powerful, than just giving your money. This is the other side of Paul's vision to be generous. If it's possible, spend time in the places where you give your money. This is how we grow in our compassion towards those in need. And I've got to wonder, what makes Jesus so compelling to a broken and needy world? If Jesus is who he says he is, he could have just snapped his fingers and your issue with sin and all the brokenness in the world would have been done. He, didn't, he, he, he should have never stepped out of heaven and came into our world to do anything. If all power is in his hands, why would he step down here and be in our lives? He didn't just care about our souls, he cared about our bodies. He spent roughly 33 years with people on earth. He fed folk. He gave them water and bread. He healed people. He sat and listened to people. He went into neighborhoods to serve and be with people. But he also gave the ultimate gift. He gave himself. He counted the cost and still gave. He knew what, it, what he was leaving behind and giving up. He left his throne in heaven and humbled himself to a man so he could be with you. He became poor so you could become rich. And I don't know what your situation is, but your money and your time, it does matter in this world. It does matter in this city, in your neighborhoods, in your own homes. And what your money and your time needs is a vision for goodness and beauty to come to bear in your life and in the, in the life of those around you. I know this is difficult and awkward to talk about money, yet a, another sermon about money, but the implication is not to guilt you or to conjure up feelings of angst and fear. It's to give you a vision for what God has blessed you with so that you could be a blessing to others. God is with you, he's for you, and he wants to walk with you in this endeavor. If you'll let him, he will give you what you need. He'll show you how to be a blessing. In fact, our church has a stewardship team that can walk with you through things like this. We have a mercy team that can help you see the needs of those here and outside. Let us not be ruled by money and time, but ask God to show us how we ought to use our money and time for his glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It does pierce the bone and marrow, the body and spirit. And Father, sometimes your word is hard to swallow, but you've given us grace. You've given us an example that when things get hard, we got a hand to hold on to. 
So now, Lord, I ask that your word would fall on fresh soil and that you would do with it as you please. Amen.